When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. Stu, I just saw you yesterday for the first time in a while, probably over a year, um, at Pac-12 Media Days in Hollywood. There's a lot to discuss. We've had a lot of media days. We've had, obviously, we did our emergency podcast over the weekend about uh, the Big 12 essentially blowing up. And Greg Sankey deftly pulling out the two blue bloods and upsetting the apple cart. So where should we begin? Well, I think it says something about how hectic Pac-12 Media Day was. And, and I really enjoyed it. I really got a lot out of it, but it was so hectic that you and I couldn't actually find time to do this in person, <laughs> to just find an hour to record a podcast. Uh so obviously the story of the day there and in college sports is what's going on with realignment. And what's interesting is, and I don't know if this is the case in a lot of the other media days, but you have, you had not just the coaches and players, but the ADs were there, um, some TV people, and they're all just kind of milling about and you could make small talk with people you knew. And so I just want to try to set the picture for people as much as we in the media and the fans are just like, trying to make heads and tails of this right now, what's going to be the next domino, et cetera. The people who actually work in college athletics are in exactly the same position. Nobody knew this was coming and they don't have the answers. They're, it's going to take a long time to, to sort everything out. And it was interesting. Like when I checked into the hotel on Monday, a lot of the coaches were just hanging out in the lobby. Their rooms weren't ready. And I could overhear a group of them having the same conversation with each other that maybe you and I and two people at a bar would have, right? They're like, what do you think? What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? And there was a lot of that over the last two days. And, um, but Kyle Whittingham, the Utah coach, I mean, he's been on the other side of this before when Utah got pulled up, he said, it basically, I think in a few years, college football will not look anything like it does today, that this is just the beginning of many dominoes. So, that seems to be a, something a lot of people feel. And now it's just a case of, and I don't think that we'll get these answers overnight, but what does that look like exactly? It's not quite as clear cut as maybe a decade ago where, okay, the big 12 got raided. They're going to go get these two teams. You know, the big 10 wanted to up. They got it like because Texas and Oklahoma were clearly the two most coveted programs out there that were realistic it's not so obvious that who, who's going to do what next. And so you're getting all of these crazy theories from the ACC might try to go out and get USC or the big 10 might try to get some of those West coast teams or the West coast teams might uh, pull some teams in. But 
George Klyovkov, the new Pac-12 commissioner, you know, both on the podium and when I talked to him one-on-one, his uh, assessment is that they have it pretty good as they are, and they've got a new TV deal coming up soon. They don't have to expand. They, they don't. He said the notion that somebody else is at 16, so we have to get to 16 is baloney, basically. But at the same time, I think everybody has to be on guard and look around and be like, am I in danger of getting poached? What can I do to, to avoid that? It's a big game of chess. I think some of it is it, it, it could be good to be at 16 if it's the right 16. Uh, adding Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, and Baylor, um, does that – and I, I think one of the things that, that would be fascinating to kind of – it's hard to get a specific straight answer because I talked to George K as well for a little bit yesterday – is the calculus is all over the place, right? So if you were to say to somebody, okay, is it as simple as, because people are going to talk about, oh, the academics part. And I don't think it's just lip service that we know the Big Ten has has definitely put more of a premium on that maybe than some of the other leagues uh, or it's cultural fit. You know, I heard, you know, George said that as well yesterday, but I think one of the things to me that is a hard one to get around is TV appeal. Who brings a lot of eyeballs? And the 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 hard reality, I think, from what this is telling us with the Big 12 um, is there is a differentiator. And I feel like you and I have had this conversation offline a bunch of late, which is, yes, there may be some group of five teams that can, do- can draw numbers like mid-level Big 12 teams. The problem for them is it's not the mid-level schools that, that the big 12 or that other, you know, the top of the food chain are coveting. They want Texas and Oklahoma. They do not want uh, the others because they just do not bring in that traditional TV poll. Yeah. They may have some games that rate because those games are against those other teams are the ones that they want. You know, I thought uh, Bob Stoops, my colleague now, Bob Stoops at Fox sports had a column um, that ran on Tuesday and there was a, I don't, I wouldn't even call it a veiled shot at Oklahoma state in there. I mean, it was a pretty blunt assessment yeah. of things. Right. And I think that kind of lined up with all that. And that to me, that's the part where, again, what Kevin Warren and the big 10 brass may think what George K and the PAC 12 brass may assess this or what Jim Phillips in the A in the ACC may look at, I think they're all going to try to figure out some version of what goes with it. But I think, you know, again, this was the story that Sam Khan and I did on Friday about the impending big 12 bombshell was one of the ADs was just talking about where it fit in terms of like who has TV value and that ESPN was in the middle of all this stuff going on with Greg Sankey and Texas and OU. And it's a, it's, this is a big TV story or it's a big broadcasting story. You know, if you want to say it's where it goes beyond just TV networks and the potential for streaming services down the road. But I think that's where um, that feels like that's where the rubber meets the road. Well, that's what I spent much of my weekend doing was pouring through TV data of every big 12 game from 2018 and 2019. I didn't, I threw out 2020. It was too screwed up to really get anything from it to see 
what what is the different like how much of the big 12's tv value tv value comes from texas and oklahoma versus the others and it's staggering it was it was worse than i expected uh in those two years these are games on fox abc espn espn2 espnu or fs1 oklahoma games averaged 3.76 million viewers texas 3.2 million viewers all of the other games involving big 12 teams not those two 886,000 to put that in perspective it is barely more than the AAC games on those same networks so to your point earlier should the big 12 go and take Oklahoma State Texas Tech some of those teams I can't see that I really can't I don't think if you're going to try to maximize your TV dollars like I don't know that those schools would I think those schools may actually reduce how much you would get Per team, I would increase the overall value by a little bit, but then you would divide it by 14 instead of 12 or 16 instead of 12. Your your per school may go down. The only reason to pursue that still possibly is if you're the Pac-12 is do you feel like given the landscape, we just really need to get into the state of Texas because Pac-12 schools recruit Texas. Everybody recruits Texas. And now the SEC has both of the big programs there. Uh, the big 12. How does that, how does that actually help you? Like, I mean, look, USC has gotten a lot of good players out of Texas over the years. They're not, you know, they're not alone, by the way, uh, like Michael James was a great player at Oregon, Texas. I'm not sure adding Texas tech and TCU and Baylor, how does that make you that much more attractive recruiting wise? I don't know that it, I don't know that it does. I don't think it does. Throw Houston in there, by the way, because to me, Houston would be, not that much different. Adding Houston not being that much different than adding those those Big Twelve Texas schools. I was actually that was another thing I found in this research is that Houston games actually do pretty well. Um, I don't know that it does. I mean, you basically you'd be saying, how important is it? To, to, can you get more recruits out of Texas if you're able to say, hey, come play here, and we're going to be going. Your your team is going to be going. Let's say you're Oregon. We'll be playing a game in Dallas every other year. You know, your family will be able to come see you in Houston every other year. I personally think that may get you one recruit. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's going to happen. Are you going to make a, that kind of a deal for that? And also, what you're doing, by the way, is you're adding four other voices, or however many teams you add, you're adding different perspectives into how you do business, right? Um, that can be good. That also can be less attractive. You know, when when they refer to a cultural fit, I'm not sure that they are going to have some of the same interests or sa- some of the s- same value of what they want and how they right. think things should run. So, again, this is, this is a little it's complicated. Um, and. My personal read on it right now, I don't think those eight teams, I don't think any of those eight leftover teams are going to get picked up by another power five conference. And that's very humbling if you're, cause these, a lot of these teams have been very good. You know, Oklahoma state under Mike Gundy has been very good. TCU under Gary Patterson up until the last couple of years, very good. Baylor has had its moments, but the number the TV numbers say what they do that people don't tune in to watch these schools unless they're playing one of the blue bloods. In fact, one real quick stat I'll throw at you of all the, those other big 12 schools games that were on ESPN over that time, the two most watched ones were non-conference games against SEC teams, Mississippi state, Kansas state, 
Ole Miss, Texas Tech. So even for those teams to draw, they had to be playing not each other. Right. So, I, I mean, one thing that kind of was an eye-opener for me, and I never paid attention to, to, to TV ratings, especially related to sports, um, hardly at all. And then, you know, once I started uh, being a sideline reporter, you know, it got discussed a little more. Um, and so the opening, it was actually Lincoln Riley's first game as the head coach at OU. Uh, my crew had a double. We had a Thursday night game in Stillwater and a Saturday game in – uh, Norman. And so the Thursday night game had some appeal when I looked at it because it was a top 10 Oklahoma state team. Remember they had that great group of receivers, um, against Tulsa and Tulsa was coming off a 10 win season. And so I was like, okay, that could be a really competitive, really interesting game. It turned out to be a blowout. Oklahoma state blew them off the field and it was a blowout pretty early, but the number on that was, really low. I want to say it was like 400,000 people. Now it didn't help that it was up against an Ohio state Indiana game that was competitive, but still I was like, man, you have a top 10 team against what was a very good group of five team coming the year, the year before. And I was guessing that, you know, at some point it would have been close to a million. It was nowhere near close to a million. And I think just, you know, we've had, I've had other games where they were, Oh, it was a Penn state game. Or if it was, it was some other big brand, you know, Ohio state games, Oklahoma, you know, Texas tech, Texas, people would tune into Texas tech, Texas, even if neither team is that good. Like, I think what happens with some of these real blue blood programs, even when they're not that good, I think honestly, sometimes people are curious because they're, they may be wanting to root against them as much as anything. I think that's, I argued, even when Notre Dame wasn't that good, people tune in to want to root against Notre Dame for years. And, you know, whether you tune in to root for them or root against them, that matters, at least from a TV perspective. And so I just don't think beyond the, the fan base, as passionate as they are, as good as the job as those, those coaches and players have done to develop those programs, I just feel like it's a relatively limited pool. And, what realignment, I think what realignment from 10 years ago taught us, or at least taught me, was, yeah, as much as you think people love March Madness and college basketball, it's college football that really moves the needle financially. And what realignment this time around is really kind of hammered home is, yeah, people love college football and power five football, but they, they only really love the top of the food chain aspect of it. I think that those brands like, you know, Texas hasn't been particularly good in a decade and people are still like, I, I told you the number over 3 million viewers a game. Like now it starts with the fact that they get picked up by, we can't separate that from the fact that, you know, when ABC and Fox do their draft, they almost always put those teams games on ABC and Fox. A lot of those, you know, TCU Oklahoma state games or whatever, they they're on FS1. They're just not going to get that big an audience, but you know, those brands are very resilient people. Those have been the faces of, of, you know, people have been watching Texas football for decades and decades and decades. And frankly, it's very hard to crack that club. Clemson has done it. Uh, I would say Oregon over the last 20, 25 years went from, you know, pretty irrelevant outside of its conference to national, but it's for the most part, it's the same schools that people were tuning into uh, for the ABC game of the week 35 years ago that they're watching now. And 
um, the difference between last realignment and this realignment was that, you know, a Rutgers was able to be a big winner in the last one, because at that point in time, these conferences were so fixated on cable households, by the way, in their cable networks, just to defend Rutgers a little bit here. Rutgers was not God awful when they went into the big 10. They they were actually, they were not horrible. Like Greg Schiano had built that program up. Even Kyle Flood's first year as a head coach in the big 10, they were respectable. I'm I'm not trying to say like Rutgers brought a ton of, a ton of uh, juice with them, but the, I think people now have been so used to Rutgers being like three and nine for so long that you're just saying, wow, they even took Rutgers. I mean, Rutgers wasn't horrible when the time of the Big Ten move. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Right, but what I'm saying is, I mean, they weren't must-see TV either. So if you're a Baylor or an Oklahoma State fan listening to this, and say, and, and I'm saying, I'm sorry, you're not going to get picked up because people don't watch your games. And you could, could be like, what, what do you mean? Like Rutgers, who watches Rutgers? What are they doing in the big 10? What is, uh, you know, uh, why was, what was another example of that? I mean, frankly, Missouri, right. When the sec got Missouri, uh, Maryland. Um, and the difference is like back then, and I say back then it was only a decade ago, but if, if you were in a market like New York, New Jersey, like, the DC area, you were very appealing just for your cable households. And with cord cutting being what it is, ESPN's lost 20 million subscribers in the last decade. It's only going to get worse. I think that the TV networks are now more concerned about national who's going to draw the most eyeballs nationally. And it is those blue blood programs. So um, we'll see. I think that right now everybody's panicking. This is very fresh. We, as we're recording this, the SEC hasn't actually officially invited Texas and Oklahoma yet, though we, we believe that will happen by the end of the week. Um, so it's not like everybody's got an answer ready of like, okay, well, we saw that coming. So here's what we're going to do now. And I'm just curious to see, like, will that panic come to fruition or not? It's easy for us to sit here and move the dominoes around and see this could happen and this could happen. But like, I, I would say to those conferences, like at the end of the day, like Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC, it's going to make them richer, but they're already rich. You know, they already get the best recruits. Is this really putting, is this move going to truly disadvantage the big 10 to the point where they feel like we have to go, we just have to go get somebody. I would argue that the big 10 has enough big brand name teams and a national, at least one national title contender every year that they could stay exactly what they are and they would be fine. 
But others would say, Andy Staples would say, no, 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 they got to go get USC. Like they got to, they got to keep up. Here's a question. So um, myself and I know I, maybe it's Antonio Morales, like there was somebody else I had this conversation with. Um, but there was also, we were talking about an administrator we had talked to in college athletics who made the case about the gap between the haves and the have nots with this financial windfall and how that would impact their football programs on the field. And the part that I kind of kind of struggling to get my mind around is if you're a program that is already spending what seems like a fortune on your head coach is making $6 million a year, your coordinators are making seven figures. Are we getting to the point where, okay, now both coordinators are going to each make $3 million a year. And is that really going to be like, I get it. Facility upgrades are coming, but like, there's a lot, like at what point, is there not diminishing returns on it where it's like, all right, you have a bowling alley and a barbershop and a, and a slide pole and a, and a, you know, all these other things going on where it's like, all right, is that really, really making a difference in, in you going from being a top 20 team to a, to a top five team to have, because you can attract better coaches because you can pay that. I get where it is. If like, okay, we're paying our special teams coordinator $300,000. Somebody else can now pay him a million, you know, then that guy's probably going to go there. Um, but is that what really this translates to between the haves and the have nots of this money? I mean, I would say, okay, you know, look at the, the windfall of money that these schools have gotten over the last decade. How many of them have tangibly turned that into a much better program. I would argue one and a half. Clemson is a poster for they spent money on coordinators, facilities, and they became a powerhouse, right? Texas A&M, I would say, is halfway there. They, they threw all that money at Jimbo. They got all that SEC money. They threw money at Jimbo. They, they built their facilities. And they are definitely in a better place than they were. They're not Clemson, but they're in a better place than they were a decade ago. I would say for most everybody else, you're just spending money to spend money. You know, you're, you're, you're putting a waterfall in because you have the money to do it. You're adding five more analysts because you have the money to do it, but you're still, you know, you're still going seven and six. You're still firing your coach after four years. So if you look at highest paid staffs in college football and highest paid assistant coaches, the top six last year, all were in the SEC all of them. And then you'd get into, I mean, really uh, it's, it's kind of, when you look at this number, it's all the schools you would expect, but it goes down to, you know, how much different is it if you are, let's use South Carolina as an example. Now Shane Beamer is not going to be making what a lot of other head coaches are making at this point in his career. But if they said, Hey, we can pay triple, what USC can pay if we can pay triple what um, you know somebody in the in the ACC can pay at Florida State is that is that a game changer for that program? Well, it could be if you hire the right coach, but like somebody's still got to lose the games, right? So it's a kind of bit of a self fulfilling thing. Like all these SEC, so let's say you know you're seeing numbers, you know, the SEC 
is paying at schools 45 million a year now. When this all happens, it's going to get up to 60, maybe even 70 million a year. That's big money. And you're right, like South Carolina, and maybe the next time they have a coaching search can offer somebody double what they can now. But like half the SEC teams still have to lose the games. So to me, it's just kind of a self, it's just a circular thing. Now you might say, oh, but in the 12 team playoff, now they're going to get, they could go eight and they're going to be so loaded that they'll go eight and four and they'll still make the playoff. I don't know if I buy that. I think that people, you know, the whole history of college football is we rank teams mostly on the number of losses. And so if South Carolina goes eight and four against an SEC schedule and Oregon goes 10 and two, like you sure. I think the 10 and two team would still get that at large berth. So um, that's my way of trying to like rein this in. Don't go crazy, everybody. But of those 10 highest paid coordinators or assistant coaches in college football, only five of them are going to be at the same. Actually, only five of them um, are still there in, in that capacity. Sark is actually maybe actually it might only be four. I'm sorry, four of the 10. Now, Sark got hired away from Alabama, so that's different. Number two pay, highest paid coordinator last year, Kevin Steele, no longer at Auburn. Bo Pelini, LSU, no longer at LSU. Brent Venables is still there. Mike Elko still at AM. Todd Grantham is still at Florida. Alex Grinch still at Oklahoma. Don Brown, got, not at Michigan anymore, was let go. Tennessee, Jim Chaney, he's not there anymore. And Texas, Mike Yursich, number 10, he's not there anymore. It's almost so. like the extra money becomes like insurance money. Like LSU can throw, how much did Bo Pelini make last year? Two, three. 2.3 million. Some of the worst 2.3 million that's ever been spent. But they can just do that and like, okay, chalk it. It was a, it was a bad hire. Move on to the next one. And it doesn't like bankrupt the athletic department the way it might somewhere else. So look, if, if the sport were such that those SEC schools were going to play half their schedule against other conferences, that would be bad for those other conferences because these teams are going to have all the money. But as long as they're playing each other, some teams are going to lose. And um, I would be cautious about feeling like they did something, so we have to do something. Uh, Stu, I had two questions for you. The first one is this. So you love realignment more than anybody I know. And I know a little of why, because it does a lot of business for, you know, it gives talk radio lots of chatter. It gives talking head shows, if they do college sports, a lot to talk about. And it gets a lot of people to want to read stories on a lot of different levels of this. So having said all that, knowing how you feel, on the flip side of it, you know, when I talk to some people, they're like, and you, this kind of was echoed a little in your Kyle Whittingham comment from what he had told you two nights ago, which is college football, as we know it, is going to change dramatically. How do you view this in the, in the macro aspect of it in terms of not as it necessarily is it good for college football, but like, I know it's good for, for business in terms of, of the media, these stories. How do you feel about it? Just want to remind you, this is the exact same question I asked you on Friday. And you said, I haven't had a chance to give any thought. <laughs> you know, I also full disclosure, I was trying to get out of get to the airport. And yeah, I yeah, just yeah. didn't have time to wrap my head around it. Okay. When I say, when I say, when you say I love realignment, it is entirely selfishly about, I mean, I can't even emphasize enough how good it is for us as sports writers for the 
there's not no topic people are more interested in people. We did a realignment series three years ago, just revisiting the events of the past. And it was the most successful thing we've ever done. And there wasn't even any current realignment going on. So I like it selfishly for that reason. Do I like it as a college football fan? I'm very mixed. I'll, I'm, you know, honestly, I am excited to watch Texas against LSU all the time, or Oklahoma against Alabama or whatever those permutations may be like that is, you can't tell me as a college football fan, you don't want to watch those games. Those are going to be big games that you tune in for. Do I love that eight big 12 schools went from being power five one day to nobody wants us the next? Absolutely not. And if these moves continue like this, it's only going to disenfranchise more schools. And that's not the college football you or I grew up on. There was always room for, like there was something to be said for Oklahoma plays Oklahoma state every year. It's a very one-sided rivalry but it's really cool for those. It's still a big deal to those fans has a really cool name. Bedlam. That's a really cool name. Uh, no, none, none of that is good. And I guess the question is what's the tipping point? Because a lot of people, myself included, thought there would be damage 10 years ago from some of those realignment moves. Like who would have thought there would be no more backyard brawl. There'd be no more Missouri, Kansas. Um, I, I don't want to keep crapping on Rutgers, but you know how I feel about, that move by Jim Delaney. But are you any less excited or interested in college football today than you were 10 years ago? I'm not. I, you know, I'm not, but I am not the intended audience. I mean, I am watching FCS games if I can watch them in the spring. I, right. you know, like I am going to tune in no matter what. And I can pivot to that. Now, having said that, um, you know, like I, <laughs> You know, what I what I liked when I was 12 and 15, it's like I am I'm, I don't feel like I'm the cynical sports writer per se in this, but it's just like I don't have the allegiances of, you know, whatever I liked when I was 14 or 15 years old, where a lot of our audience, a lot of the people I would see at games, they grew up, especially if they grew up in a place where like pro sports wasn't the thing. Um you know, like I grew up a Steelers fan when I was a little kid. I don't root for the Steelers. I don't root against them, but I don't have that same passion for the Steelers. Um, you know, now I root for NFL teams where there's players, our coaches I know. Um, so I just feel like I'm probably not the best barometer of that. I want to see the games. I love the games every bit as much now, if not more um, than I do. You know, it's weird because like in some way, you know, I the – certain things kind of resonate for me, you know, like I have told this story, I'm sure on the podcast before, you know, I'm not like a heavy metal fan, but the beginning of enter Sandman will get my, I will get goosebumps. Like I'm getting right now. And I even say it because I think of lane stadium and I know what it's like to be in that stadium. When I just hear the beginning of it, something kind of uh, clicks inside of me. It happens every time. And so um, for the fans who have that kind of, like, I don't, I, I'd be lying if I said, you know, when I see dotting of the eye or when I see certain traditions, you know, war Eagle, it doesn't affect me the way it affects them, you know? So, right. um, so it's, it's hard to, to kind of, to put myself in, in people's shoes for that, because I just feel like as long as the game is the game, I'm going to still be really, really into it because, We've seen people come and go. We're like by the nature of college sports, 
and from a media perspective, great players come and go and they get replaced all the time and coaches, same thing. You get used to change is the biggest constant in this. So I think maybe that's part of it. I feel like the people who run college football are constantly testing the notion that college football fans by and large are, the, are some of the most passionate, most rabid fans in any sport. They are so attached to their schools. They will follow them through thick and thin. And I feel like they're constantly like doing running an experiment to see like, well, is this the one that'll push you over the edge? Is this the one that'll push you over the edge? Um, like for instance, you know, Michigan fans, right? One of the biggest, most rabid fan bases there is out there. Um, the big 10 goes and puts Rutgers and Maryland in their division. So they lose uh, like they used, the little Brown jug, right? Minnesota they used to play that every year. Now they don't play that every year anymore. And instead, one of these schools that you have no particular interest in is going to come to your stadium every year. And Michigan's not particularly good right now. And the big house is still sold out every week, right? Like, where does that resiliency get tested a little bit? I don't know. I just know that if further down, like, I don't actually think Texas and Oklahoma, the SEC, is going to damage interest in the sport as a whole. It might actually grow it. I don't know. But it's definitely going to damage interest in those eight schools that get left in the dust. Like, how... How could you not, um, you know, some of them are diehards. A lot of them are diehards. You know, I, I'd love to know what the mentality is like a diehard Texas Tech fan. If five years from now, you're in a conference with Houston and UCF, I don't know what. And you're clearly like of diminished status. You're not playing Texas and Oklahoma anymore. Do you, does how, what does that, what effect does that have? Are you not going to tune in for every game every week like you used to? Or are you just going to keep watching because you love your team so much? I don't know. I think it's to be the latter. I feel yeah. like that's a, a particularly passionate fan base. And, and that's why they feel they can just keep going for the money. Just, just, we'll just keep grabbing more and more money at whatever cost because the fans will keep watching no matter what we do. Okay. And so let's so, test of that. So let's talk about testing resolve here. Um, you and Nicole Auerbach, our colleague at the athletic had a story um, coming out of PAC 12 media days about how, and I thought this was fascinating, Matt Fortuna, um, another colleague at The Athletic, I thought had a really interesting column a few days ago, which was something that I didn't think about until I saw it, which was, okay, so all the talk about the CFP and how this has been behind the scenes wrangling that a lynch, you know, like nobody knew about until they, un until they kind of unveiled it, was that it could expand to 12 and that this working group that included Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame AD, as well as Craig Thompson from the Mountain West. But also it was Greg Sankey and Bob Bowlesby. All the while, while this was going on, Greg Sankey, uh, apparently with ESPN's, uh, you know, at his side, had been working behind the scenes to pretty much gut Bob Bowlesby's conference. Yep. Uh so, I, I mean, to me, that's kind of like the most um, kind of the, the most mind blowing aspect of, of all the realignment stuff. So what you guys have reported is that don't be so sure that, that the expansion is going to happen maybe as quickly in light of what some people look at as this is a betrayal. Yeah. So, you know, we're just getting to know the new Pac-12 commissioner. But I, one thing I can tell you for sure, he is not afraid to say things on the record that maybe some of his counterparts would keep to themselves or 
or say anonymously to somebody. I'm, so we were all puzzled, not we were all a little bit puzzled when the way this all played out, right? Remember, they snuck it into a press release that they formed this committee two years ago and never told anyone uh, and that they were exploring bigger options than eight. And then with great fanfare, the four of them, Sankey, Swarbrick, Craig Thompson, and Bullsby announced this 12-team format before they actually found out if their colleagues were supporting it or not. And you would ask them, like, you know, they have all these details about the games are going to be at full sites and there's going to be this many at large bits. Well, when's it going to start, guys? Oh, no, 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 that's not, that wasn't our charge. We weren't asked to, to come up with that. The contract runs through 2025 and just assume for now that that'll stay the case, but we can talk about doing it earlier. So, you know, here's um, George Klyovkov coming from MGM Grand. He has no previous, uh, you know, dealings with how college sports works. And he's coming in and he's trying to get up to speed. And as he said to us, like he was pretty puzzled why there was this rush to, to come out and announce it when it was so far from actually becoming reality. He, you know, the question of whether you should, if you go early, then you have to stick with ESPN. You never get a chance to take it to the open market. And now he's, 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 now he sees what was going on. He thinks that and he didn't say Greg Sankey's name, but I think it's pretty clear that he, and also his counterparts at the ACC and Big Ten feel like they were trying to pull a fast one on him. Um, here's a quote. More importantly, I've yet to get an answer, although I think in hindsight I understand the motivations, about why we were rushing to get this out in June. With Alston, the Supreme Court case, and NIL on the table, and no immediate next step in the timeline for expansion, there was at the time no understanding of why you needed to announce it in June. We misset expectations among our fans about how quickly this can get done, and I think that's a shame. So my read on it is that he, like I said, those three conferences want to pump the brakes. Not that we're not still going to go to 12 teams at some point, but I now, you know, can't see them in coming out in September and saying it's done deal. It's happening and it's happening in two years. I think they want to see how some of the, I think they want to see how this realignment's going to shake out. And I also think that if you're him, if you're Kevin Warren and you already kind of felt like, well, wait a minute, I, I kind of think we should take this to the open market that now you have even more reason to do that. Well, also remember the SEC didn't really go to the open market. It did its deal with ESPN before that. So that is in line with that strategy. Um, not shocking yeah. that the CFP might've bungled the PR aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, he, at the time it was sold to us as the, you know, we, we let these four guys handle it so that we could keep it a secret so we could keep it under wraps it's more efficient that way and so that by the time the whole group talked about it as a whole you're not just talking about it kind of vaguely like here's a specific proposal for you guys to consider right and that made sense but now after seeing greg sankey pull this move they're like you know he's like wait a minute why why did four conferences get to dictate this to the other ones why were the acc big 10 and uh Pac-12 not included in the formation of this playoff. So now that being said, you might say, well, George, I understand you might have some hurt feelings, but your conference really needs an expanded playoff. So you sure you want to put it off another five years? What if the Pac-12 doesn't goes another five years without getting in? Well, also the, the, what happens if it's the, the, if it's the SEC on its own here with this? What do you mean? I mean, because now you're talking about the, the Big Ten, which does have a lot of money um, and does bring a lot of eyeballs with Kevin Warren. Uh, you're talking about the ACC, you know, Notre Dame, by the way, which 
uh, Jack Swarbrick was on that working group was another one in there. Now, from what I understand, ESPN and Sankey did have a, a financial projections worked out of what Notre Dame would be in that part of it. So I don't know how this thing gets. I don't want to say put the toothpaste back in the bo- in the tube, but what leverage do the people who really feel like they have been deceived, what do they have going forward? The leverage is that it has to be unanimous for them. No, I'm saying, but like, and if it's not, then what? For them, for them to make changes to the playoff, all 11. Okay. But have what? to be on board. So then you stay at four. You stay at, well, I don't think they're going to stay at four permanently, but I think they, they could say, we, we don't want it to, we don't want to rush it through in 2023. We don't, you and, you know, you Sankey, you and ESPN have been up to no good. Like, you know, what is it? I mean, you, you, you know, you're at Fox, like they would kill to get in on the playoff, but the only way it can happen is if they let the contract go through till the end. So maybe Kevin Warren, who has a relation, you know, has a relationship with Fox says, yeah, sorry. Big 10 does not support doing this sooner. Like, Sorry if you assumed that was going to be the case, but we're putting our foot down and then it wouldn't happen. So I always thought it was weird. Do you think Jim Phillips from the ACC does that as well? Right now, I think the three of them are aligned. Now, will that stay? Think about about some of the some of the pieces here. So let's take Jim Phillips, the ACC. He's the new ACC commissioner. They are the ACC network. That's an ESPN entity. Um, That's hard. That's going to be hard to unpack that from the playoff and the expansion and Greg Sankey and what this power, it's all kind of inter- intertwined. The part that's a little bit out there differently is the big 10 aspect of it. Well, ESPN could say, Hey, uh, AC, you know, the, we know the ACC is trying to figure out how they're going to, you know, a lot of people feel like they have to add a school or two because it's the only way they're ever going to get out of that deal. That is so undervalued and locked in until 2036. What if, what if ESPN said to them, hey, if you agree to support the 12-team playoff sooner, we'll we'll rip up your deal right now and give you more money. There, there you go. So now all of a sudden now it's we're going to take these other teams, maybe the ACC, I don't know, adds UCF. No, I'm saying they say, like, you don't even need to take new teams. Like, yeah. we understand your concerns. We want to be good partners with you. Here's some more money. Now, in return, get that 12-team thing pushed through. Yeah. I don't know. And also, uh, this, and also this, it, it devol it, it becomes a, a, the big Rose Bowl uh, kind of bridge between. Oh, if you two are really ticked off about this, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are basically on their own island, and then these other ones are, are more aligned to go along with the Greg Sankey and the and where that's headed. As we're talking about this, I just it just really rams home how unstable this sport is right now. Um, for so many years, right. It was kind of the same group of guys, Jim Delaney, Mike Sly, John Swafford, Bowlesby, you know, there wasn't much change in their roster. And then in the last few years, like almost all of those jobs have churned over and, oh, by the way, you guys have to let, uh, now athletes can transfer without sitting out NIL, uh, the pl- 14 playoff that we thought for sure was going to be great has actually turned out to have some bad effects. And we need to look at that. And now the whole realignment thing. And it's like, I mean, the amount of backstabbing that went on in the big 12 sec thing is just, is just staggering. And there'll probably be more of it. Um, 
I think if you're an AD right now, like you're, you just gotta be, your head is just spinning in a million directions trying to keep up with this. Our heads are too, and we don't have a direct stake in the game. Should we do some mailbag? Yeah, let's get to it. As long as you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, our first one this time, I don't know that he's ever actually emailed us a question before, but we know him well. John Bassalone, president of Trader Joe's. Yes, uh, our favorite sponsor and our favorite uh, favorite grocery store. Dear Bruce and Stu, and this is a question about conference realignment, is now the time for USC to call Greg Sankey in the SEC? Do you think he would take that call? I think he probably would take that call. USC has a major market. They have as rich a history as any football program in the country. They... It's almost like, you know, and I've heard this come up a lot from people who work there. It's almost like they have to screw it up. Even when USC is sputtering, they're still landing five-star recruits, you know? And so I would think that's something that Sankey would absolutely entertain because you get, I don't know. I, I just think there's too many positives with USC I get it. Geographically, it's far from the rest of your footprint. I mean, the L.A. to Starkville flight is not easy to pull off (laughs) or from Columbia, South Carolina. But at the same time, it's USC. It is a different animal than almost everybody else that we're talking about. Let me throw out a different idea that has been brought up to me, uh, has been speculated about. What if USC goes independent? What if USC says we're going to make a deal with Fox? We're going to, they're going to pay us to just like uh, NBC does to Notre Dame. And as part of that, we will get, instead of joining the SEC and playing all our games in the South, we'll we'll play, you know, we're going to play two or three games a year, every year against the SEC. And we're going to play two or three against the big 10 and and so on and so forth. Look, that idea, a version of it has been discussed almost as long as I've lived out here in Los Angeles. Uh, Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com has, we have talked about this from the time of Mike Garrett getting sideways with the NCA, the USC should the USC should leave the Pac-12 because they do not have a favorable deal related to the rest of the conference. USC should leave the NCA because they basically got got the Heisman from them in one way or another, um, so to speak. I, I think everything would be on the table for USC. I think it is hard to go independent as it is with Notre Dame. Um, but I think if the TV money was right, I think there's a lot of people at USC would entertain that. It would just be how much is the money going to be right there? Because you're talking about scheduling for other sports. But I think, you know, you said a little bit ago that the TV numbers, when you're talking about like Texas plays Texas Tech or Texas plays Kansas or Kansas State, they raise those, that audience. That's what USC would do if they played uh, if they if they played Oregon State, if they scheduled them as an independent, or if they played your alma mater, Northwestern, or if they like almost everybody they play, they are going to bring eyeballs to. And it yeah. is a huge media market. And I also think right now the landscape is very different. Um, you know, given also one of the things that's come up a lot this week is USC, especially not just USC, but much of the Pac-12 really should be 
um, have some leverage with the NIL and some of these big markets out here. And I think that's another chip that they have in their, in their favor on this. I think that, you know, when I wrote that story on Monday about the, the you know, the, the big 12 TV ratings, I had people in the comments went on saying like, you know, how is this any different than Oregon state or Northwestern or Vanderbilt? It's not, they, they too would be, you know, the only difference is the big 12 Texas and Oklahoma were always seemed like a threat to leave. And they did. There's never been any inkling that Ohio State or Michigan are looking to leave the Big Ten. And there's really never been any inkling about USC leaving the Pac-12 because historically the Pac-10, Pac-12 has just been a little bit more traditionalist than the others, right? They still care about going to the Rose Bowl. They still care about, uh, you know, out here where I live, like the Stanford-Cal game is a really big deal. And they want to just... A lot of these fans just want to watch their team play at one o'clock and go home and go on with their day. Right. So USC has always been kind of an outlier in that they are, I think their fans feel like they have more in common. You tell me, I think their fans feel like they have more in common with Ohio state, Alabama, et cetera, than most of the schools in the PAC 12, other than where they're located. Yeah. But they, I mean, they actually, I think have real leverage because of their audience, because of the market there. It's just different. I mean, it really, to me, and I've argued this for a long time, USC is better positioned to dominate its league than any other school. And that includes Alabama. Alabama is great because they have the best coach in the history of the sport. And they obviously have a lot of resources and a lot of other factors going into it. But if Nick Saban is not the head coach, if Nick Saban stayed at LSU and was not at Alabama, this we're to, we're not talking about Alabama the same way as we have in the last you know decade, and I just think I don't want to say like even with Clay Helton, USC is a top fifteen program kind of thing, but it's like you know whoever goes there is probably going to win a lot of games. What do you say we pivot to things other than realignment? Sounds good. All right, Chris Davis, Hopedale, Massachusetts. Hello, Stu and Bruce. I am a BC alum and fan of the pod. Having followed BC for many years, I see many similarities between the Jeff Halfley coaching staff and that of Tom Coughlin. I have reset my expectations to the 2021 season as a minimum of eight wins, and more importantly, the team remains competitive in every game, i.e. no blowout against Clemson. In my opinion, Halfley's staff has raised the recruiting level significantly, and I'm confident that they will do the same with player development. Are my expectations reasonable? Yes, they are. I think Jeff Halfley was a great hire. Um for then A.D. Martin Jarman, but it just, if you were around him at Ohio State and knew what he did, I mean, how he really transformed that defense, and then you dug into his past and what he was like, you know, our friend Dave Wanstead was one of the first to really give him a chance. I mean, he's the perfect hire for them, and you can win there. Like, you know, obviously Tom Coughlin had success. Jack Bicknell had a lot of success. I mean, it started to go sideways with Frank Spaziani, and then it... You're forgetting the most famous, not fam- most successful, albeit very brief... Jeff Jagodzinski. Yes. Yeah, I know. Number I'm two in the country. Number two for- in the country with Matt Moran, yep. Yeah, I'm not forgetting him, but it's just like... But there was, there was nothing fluky in terms of what BC could do, right? In terms of... No, it's, it's not... It's not an easy place to recruit to because you don't have a huge recruiting base locally just because of football in that region isn't as isn't as deep as other places. But I think 
I think the thing with them is being more than solid. I think the thing is, yes, you know, because they were, I think they were a little underwhelming to say it kindly under uh, Steve Adazio. Felt like they were just kind of, I don't know how to describe it. Just, they were backsliding under him. And I think that this is a huge upgrade and I think you can sell it. I think they have a chance to not just be a top 25 team, as long as Halfley's there. So here's, here's how I felt like it. BC could be pretty good for a couple of years, and then they'd have that one year and four where they could be a top 10 kind of team or top 15 team. I think if you have the right coach, which they do right now, I think you have a chance to consistently be a top 25 program um, and to be a top consistently a top 15 program because they have enough resources there to do that. And as long as he's there, I think they have a chance to be a top 15 team every year. As I'm listening to you say that, I guess when I was saying earlier, like, oh, I don't think the other conferences have to be that impacted by the SEC. But you know, one way they could be is as soon as Jeff Halfley has one good season at BC, the, the you know, other than maybe Vanderbilt, like any SEC school could offer him way more than Boston College could. Yeah, but if so, if they did, if Jeff had like, let's think about this realistically. I don't think Jeff Halfley is going to go to Columbia, South Carolina, because they would offer him $2 million a year more or to Starkville, Mississippi, or to Oxford, Mississippi. I think if you're at BC and you're like, I don't think it's entirely just a money grab to go from, you know, because if you go to one of those places that like somebody hasn't really won there consistently, I'm not sure, like, what are you doing? You're just chasing the money then. Yeah. I mean, because you still got to go up against Alabama and Florida and LSU and now Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley and Georgia. I mean, that is a tough path. You're going to talk about the money you're throwing in there, which is not I'm not dismissing it entirely. But it's still like if you're at a place that's been a have not. I mean, if I'm you know, if you're you're the head coach at Vandy and I get it, uh, Clark Lee, you know, grew up there and he went to Vandy. But it's like that job's only going to get harder now. That's the thing. It's kind of that, what I was saying earlier about that, like self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, or maybe that's not the right phrase. I don't know, but yes, this deal makes it so that South Carolina has a lot more money to throw at a coach. But if anything, that coach's path gets got harder, not easier. And, you know, South Carolina, other than a very brief uh, time under Steve Spurrier has never fared particularly well in the sec. Do we really think that some extra money is going to, change that you're still like you just said you're still got to play all those same teams yeah and, the, and now you got more now you got lincoln riley in there um that's gonna be a tough you know like that's gonna be a tough out for you when when he's gonna have great offenses and you know they're they're a little different than some of the other top five top eight teams that have been in come out of the sec but they're one of them and it's now it's just good luck slowing them down Here's a fun one from Barry in Portland. Bruce and Stu, thanks for the continued weekly podcast. I know this is a better off-season question. Well, this is the off-season. But with Stu recently writing about Shane Beamer and his mailbag, it got me thinking, what is the definitive ranking of NCAA football coaching families? Is it the aforementioned Beamers, the Stoopses, the Bowdens, the Cragthorpes, the Dykes, or someone else I'm not thinking of? Just a fun exercise. I would like to have seen this question beforehand. <laughs> well, it's um, got to be the Bowdens. We've got to be number one. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Bobby had a legendary career, and Terry had a 
very good run at times. You know, obviously had a great <laughs> one. Yeah, an undefeated season yeah. in the SEC. Yeah. Um, I think I'm trying to think if there's, you know, who else is there. Um, you know, there were the Dooley's. I mean, the older ones, not Derek necessarily, but. Um, yeah, I mean, if you throw Derek out of there, I think they they would. I mean, on, on Vince alone, they would rank very high. Uh, I am thinking on the fly on this. I know there are people we're going to forget. I'm trying to find an article that has some of this. It's too early to tell on the, obviously Frank Beamer is a Hall of Fame coach and Shane has, you know, we'll see what Shane does as a head coach. I think it's too early to, you know, to me right now, I feel like it's, it's the Bowdens. You know, that reminds me, Bruce, we went a long time on here without being able to do a podcast. I don't know that we've actually had a chance to talk about Bobby Bowden. His legacy or, I mean, I don't, obviously there's, there's really sobering news about, that came out about his health. And, That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. they came out and announced he has a terminal cancer. He's 90 years, 91 years old. Uh, I mean, you know, we always talk about on here about like, kind of like your, your frame of reference for college football kind of depends on when you came up. Well, we came up at the height of the Bobby Bowden, Florida state dynasty, the first two national championship games I covered were Florida state, Virginia tech and Florida state, Oklahoma. Um, I went down there many times. Uh, I can, I can actually remember when he would have breakfast with the media the morning after a, a home game. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough, like what uh, just transformative figure he was in college football. We talk about, you know, we've talked about that with Howard Schnellenberger and the impact he had on one school in particular, but I think, what he did at Bobby Bowden did at Florida state had massive ramifications for the whole sport because it wasn't like the state of Florida had had huge national success before he got to Florida state. And certainly when Schnellenberger got to Miami and Spurrier got to Florida, he was entirely relatable to, to players and to people. I think, um, you know, we all have our like maybe own individual, one-off moment where you're like, okay, he's really different. And I just remember we did some, we worked on some story at ESPN magazine, as you know, from the magazine world, like often those longer stories take a while to put together. It's not like, like you or I at the athletic um, can turn something around a lot faster. When you have like eight layers of editing, it's hard to do that at like a magazine or at least it was. And so we had some story. I remember it fell through and the idea of getting like, we got Bobby Bowden on the fly for like, I don't know, it was a half hour and he was really accessible and he was great. And just in terms of what we were able the story we were able to tell, um, there was almost like, and th this is going to probably sound like, yeah, well, that's not a heavy lift, but the idea that like arguably the, the biggest name in coaching at the time, which I think he was along, you know, was, was there along with probably at that point with Joe Paterno um, were the two iconic coaches, maybe at that point, you know, I don't remember like where Spurrier was at that point, but I just felt like Bobby Bowden because he had such a long tenure as well as what he did at that at, for FSU, as you said, and just the fact that he was so accessible and so personable um, and so, um, I, 
I think accessible, personable. And the other thing to me was, I don't feel like he took himself that seriously. Like he was so approachable in a way that like, he would talk to anybody, you know, like that to me was, was really part of the charm in him. Cause he was super charming, you know, like some of the other coaches we're talking about, you know, I don't want to disparage them by talking glowingly about how his nature was, but that's how he was. I remember vividly, like I said, that Florida State Virginia Tech game was my first time covering a national title game. And if you remember, like a few days before the game, or maybe I don't, the game was like a January 3rd or 4th. And on New Year's Eve, Sebastian Janikowski violated curfew. Yeah. And that got out, and that was a big controversy. So I'm on the field of the Superdome, you know, scrum around him after practice, whether he's getting asked about this. Like, is he going to be suspended? No. Why? Well, we have an international exception. <laughs> like, I don't know that any coach would say that now. It's, it's gotten too serious, but that's, that was his explanation. And nobody really pressed him much further on that. Um, you know, I think what's amazing is that you look at his career and his life, like the, it's like, a, you know, the amount of different eras of college football he touch, touches that he was coming up in the state of Alabama when Bear Bryant was the Alabama coach, he was the coach at West Virginia famously when Marshall had its plane crash. And that's documented in the movie, how he stepped up and helped them out. Obviously, um, you know, took over Florida state in 1976, took them through their rise up into the ACC as the ACC became, you know, what it is today. And then I believe he over, it was only uh, one year, but obviously his son got fired at Clemson and he overlapped for one year with Dabo Swinney. So, you know, I'm talking from Bear Bryant to Dabo Swinney. That's pretty amazing. It is. It is. Um, you know, it's an amazing legacy. And there was a lot of coaches and a lot of players and a lot of, a lot of honestly, um, very, you know, people who did some amazing things beyond football. You know, I think of the Warwick Duns and, and mm-hmm. people like that who, who learned under him. And I mean, there's too, oh, there's too many to single out. You know, I even think of like, you know, just, we both know Myron Roll really well mm-hmm. and Myron could have gone anywhere and wanted to be part of uh, what Bobby Bowden. And he obviously bought into Mickey Andrews. who was a longtime defensive coordinator there. And so I think, and that was towards the tail end of obviously Bobby Bowden's run in Tallahassee as the head coach, but just, man, it's, it's quite a legacy of, of, of people he touched. I think that's the biggest thing beyond just the winning, the wildly successful uh, football resume. So let's end this podcast by sending out our deepest thoughts and, and prayers for, for Bobby and for his family. Um, you know, I think we, we've, we've been consumed for the last week of talking about TV uh, deals and, and conference alignment, and whatnot. And you don't want to forget the, the people that are at the heart of college football. In fact, one of Bobby's former offensive coordinators, Mark Richt, uh, came out that he has Parkinson's. Jeff Schultz from our site, from The Athletic, wrote all, we had an interview with him. Uh, Mark, you talk about like the, one of the classiest people I've ever interacted with in, in this beat is Mark Richt. So um, we also were thinking of him and, um, you know, just want to keep, keep that front and center and keep that in mind and don't let realignment madness overshadow some of the real um uh hard things that some people are going through 
Yeah. And, and quite honestly, Bobby Bowden had a big role, especially in, we were talking about TV games and everything and, um, and rivalry games and all this. And, you know, he had a huge role, I feel like in elevating the game in elevating college football. And, um, you know, I think we're grateful for the impact he had on everything. All right, guys, uh, bringing full circle, as always, you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com. I'm sure the college football world will have changed dramatically yet again by the time we do another episode, but we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.